From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Radio transmission. The handle or name you adopt should be one of a kind, based on something special in your life. This is Porky Chedrick on March 12, 1973. Well, you nice people living in the middle of America, the beautiful. Everything is beautiful. Uh, We're talking about radio. Radio meaning you do not see the picture, you hear the voice. Here's something called the Vox Humana. Hear the human voice. But the point is, radio involves the audience far more than television ever did. This is WJAK, Monday, March 12, 1973. Thank you, and here's some more hit music. Take 20 now, people. This is Big Jagger. On our way to Canaan land. Here we go. When you think about how much airspace there is in the world, and then you think about the people and radio stations and truckers and spies and ham radio operators who are using that airspace to transmit sound, it makes you feel like while lying in bed at night as the streams of words go by above your head, you could just pluck one out and listen in. I'm Gwen Maxi, and today on ReSound, we bring you transmissions. Transmissions you want to hear, transmissions you're not supposed to hear, and transmissions no one has been able to figure out for decades. Stay with us. Show me someone who doesn't want to listen in on other people's conversations, and I'll show you someone who's, at the very least, nothing like me. Who doesn't want to know what's being kept from them? The airwaves are a tangle of transmissions. Some people are cryptically saying something, and others are desperately trying to decrypt it. Our government agencies, other government agencies, spies, and who knows who else. In our first story today, Listening at the Border, producer Jay Needham introduces us to someone, of course, he remains nameless, who for years spent every day all day, trying to decipher scratchy transmissions from North Korea. While you're looking for something, it sounds much like it does when you're looking for something in your car stereo or your home stereo just intense static because you have the volume jacked up so you can hear even the faintest you know, voice. And the static is just this roar like the electronic an electronic ocean wave or something. It's just that white staticky noise and then it fades in and fades out and fades in and then when you do hear a voice more often than not it sounds like you had taken a voice recorder and put it in a coffee can and then sunk it to the bottom of a lake and then were trying to listen to it. It's almost unintelligible. And in fact is unintelligible to probably 95% of those who hear it. And that's where the training comes in. After 63-week training course, in California and then another six months of the actual listening training. I was sent to Korea in January, 1996. 
my primary job was to monitor uh, North Korean military communications. So the language training itself, eight hours a day, five days a week for 63 weeks, uh, studying nothing else. It was intense. All native speakers uh, were our instructors. It was an amazing time. But what I wasn't really as prepared for was the second phase of the training, I guess, the actual listening portion. Doing the job that I would be doing later on in Korea, we would have samples of audio that you had to transcribe, and you would have to loop it over and over and over and slow it down and speed it up and try to break up syllable by syllable, trying to find out what it was that they were saying. Not moving, not even breathing that heavy, just trying to listen and catch every word. And that became a stress in itself. I mean, you try to listen so intensely and get everything right, knowing that if you don't, it could be your job lost. I ended up giving myself an ulcer over it. You know, so you, you have to be listening for the code words. You have to know what the code words are, then know how they're said, then know how the Korean, the North Korean dialect differs from the South Korean and how that makes words sound different. Because not only is it understatic, and not only is it in a foreign language, but it's also in code. It's almost simplistic to say, but it just takes doing it and doing it and repeating it and doing it over again. Kind of bringing yourself into your own head almost, just so where the only thing that's registering is the sound. Finding out exactly what was going on, who was around, what was happening, and then once I knew exactly where I was in space, put the headphones back on, and then there was that bringing the curtain down, so to speak, on all of that that I was just taking stock of. Listening in for any kind of voice activity. And after a while, you got very adept at discerning even the faintest of, of voices. Because it, it's, it's tiring. Because there's, a, there's an activeness to it. Because a hearing is, is definitely a passive activity. And, and listening it requires so much more engagement on, on your part. The listening on a day-to-day -day basis, the material, was always the same. Most often the same, but at any time it could be different. So you still had to listen very closely. It's as if you were reading the same page of a book over and over again. Even though you know what the words were, you still had to read them even more carefully. It was so taxing mentally. And I never thought I'd be a spy. I mean, that's what spying is. Looking and listening when people don't know that you are. Then again, I guess I thought spying would be a little more exciting. This is, this is no James Bond here. Not so much for the exciting spy life. I mean, I wonder if they know. I mean, not that they know that I personally am listening to them. But I wonder if they know that they're being listened to. And I'm just listening to people's voices trafficking in something that doesn't exist anymore. We make a record of it. Use it for our own purpose. If I'm sitting here, listening to them, 
And there are other linguists all over the world listening to other people. Well, certainly, that somebody's listening to us, too. I remember one time going down into the market, outside the base in the Ville. It was a little narrow street that led right outside the main gate, barely wide enough for a compact car. The place was just packed, business after business after business, six inches from the other. And I went down there to get some yakimandu. Uh, it was a fried dumpling from a vendor who had a little canopied stand with his little deep fryer. And he handed me the food. And as I'm eating it, I look at the wrapper, and it says top secret on the top of it. I'm eating fried fish dumplings out of classified material. So just as I'm collecting information every day about the North Koreans and what they're doing, these South Koreans outside the base are checking us out, seeing what we're doing. It's this circle of secrets and information. And once you are in the know, in the circle, got the dish, the lowdown, the skinny, it's a weird feeling because then you start to walk around head a little higher. You're walking a little taller. You've got something that nobody else has got. You kind of feel a little like a Bond, James Bond. And it's interesting because you feel like you have a certain power. And you may not really have power, but it feels that way. It's a strange kind of power that comes from having something that you really can't use in any way. But the mere fact of possessing it imbues you with some sort of feeling of power. Because that's the other part of this listening business is because you are in possession of information that you cannot share with people. And that's the other thing about secrets. Everybody wants to know a secret, but there is something in us where everyone wants to tell a secret as well. And here I have this information and yet cannot share it with anyone. And that itself is a bit of a burden. It doesn't bother me to have this information, but the fact that I'm not allowed to tell it creates a certain feeling inside. But at the same time, it creates this kind of sense that while you're there, the linguist, the spy, there becomes almost a, a, a class system within the listeners and the people that are listening to very complicated multiple sound streams of Air Force material or Navy material. The stuff that we're listening to is categorized. Not officially, but unofficially. And the people that listen to the very complex things occupy this higher social caste. And the people that listen to this certain target are the serfs of the linguists. I was on the rack on a particular day. And all of a sudden, the voice that I was listening to became very labored, very tense. And this new plane that they were following was coming straight down. And we became aware very quickly that the plane she was talking about wasn't a South Korean airplane or a US airplane, but one of North Korea's own jets. A pilot had taken one of their jets while he was doing a routine training flight and took off went straight to the border, defected. And once he got into that South Korean space, I looked behind me, I hadn't seen so much brass since basic training. 
colonels, lieutenant colonels, generals. The place was a madhouse. I didn't know it because I had the headphones on, staring at my little green screen. That plane came all the way to an American airbase, landed. It was the most exciting day that I had there. That's what's interesting about the North Korean target, because as we are all trafficking in secrets, there is hardly a country on earth that is more secretive and people know less about than North Korea. It's the last bastion of strict communism. I left Korea in 1998, January. I was sent back to the States. I was stationed at a base outside of Washington, in between Washington and Baltimore. And it was so different from Korea in that where I was in this cavernous room with the movie screen with the map of Korea on it and the people walking around, not unlike what you see in the movies, to the regular office, the cubicles, the three-sided little universe that you inhabit and walk around and talk to your colleagues while they do what they do in their little cubicle. I can't really tell you about where I worked exactly, but I can tell you about the gift shop. The gift shop at this government agency's building was full of all array of tchotchkes with the logo of the secret government agency emblazoned on it. There were giant golf umbrellas polka dotted with the logo. There were shot glasses, ink pens, mouse pads, fleece tops, beach towels, toddler t-shirts with a crayon version of the logo. There were beer steins and coffee mugs and pencils and bucket hats and visors and baseball caps and embroidered sweatshirts, all with a giant logo and name of the exact place that we're not supposed to talk about. So when I was there and went into the gift shop, I bought a t-shirt and a sweatshirt and a t-shirt for my father-in-law and some magnets for my parents, some books for my brother, but I can't tell you about it. Once I had realized and grasped the idea that we are soaking it in from every point of the globe in terms of intelligence and information, it really resonated with uh, the unofficial motto that we had around the building. In God we trust, all others we monitor. Gathering up that much material, and not just me, but every other shop in the building, there was a lot of worry attached. Am I missing something? Is there something important in that month-old stack or that you're translating or haven't gotten to yet that affects a whole lot of other people? And that becomes a burden after a while. And it wasn't because we hated being in the military or didn't enjoy our jobs anymore, but it was a kind of pressure and a kind of weight that sat on you. Leaving that culture, that culture of listening, 
there was definitely some transitions that had to be made. I came out of my time in the military with a certain set of skills and experiences that I didn't think was going to benefit me in the civilian world. I would go to the job service and everything that I knew how to do was not anywhere to be found in terms of jobs. In some ways, I think my present-day experiences create a kind of full circle. Military to civilian, soldier to artist, listener to doer. The act of listening that I did, the ability to key in and hone in on syllables, words, sentences, and squeeze every bit of meaning out of what people are saying has been an invaluable gift in my acting training. Been a military member, a spy, and an actor. These are two polar opposites almost. It's been a strange realization as to how those two worlds have collided and kind of came together and served one another. But the one has really informed the other. In a strange and in an ironic way, it has made me a much better actor, having been a military spy. 경계의 개념은 그 경계에서 듣는다는 것은 the idea of borders. 남과 북의 사이 listening at that border. 그리고 민간과 군인 the border between north and south. 그리고 듣는자와 말하는자 the border between military and civilian. 그리고 기표와 기의 차입니다. The border between listening and hearing. 그리고 단순히 선만도 아니죠. The border between text and subtext. 또한 단순히 지도나 도표 위에서 볼수 있는 어떤 것만은 아니죠. Borders are not only physical. They're not only property lines or demarcation lines or something that can be seen on a map or a chart. There's all sorts of borders. 그러니까 우리가 경계 위로 걸어간다면 또는 건너간다면 in relationships, in geography, in nature, 우리는 in art and if we go up to the border and straddle it 모든 경계를 흐리게 할수 있습니다. and even cross it. We make a further step to dissolving all borders. 자유롭게 건너갈 수 있다는 말이죠. and being able to roam freely in our ideas, in our hearts, in our intentions. In our actions, 우리의 사상과 마음으로, 의지와 행동으로, we can truly see that we don't have to have the borders. 우리는 진실로 우리의 경계를 가질 필요가 없다는 사실을 깨닫게 될 것입니다. Listening at the border by producer Jay Needham. Jay is a professor in the Mass Communications and Media Arts Department at the University of Southern Illinois at Carbondale. You're listening to Resound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival. If you tune in to the shortwave signals hidden between the AM and FM band on frequencies from 3 to 30 megahertz, you can hear voices endlessly reciting streams of numbers in different languages all day, every day, for decades on end. 
These number stations, as they're called by ham radio operators and military communications experts, contain no information about where they're transmitting from or who they're trying to reach. Producer David Gorin did a little sleuthing about these odd number stations. The first time I heard a Spanish numbers lady, I was a kid, lying in bed, tuning around on my uncle's old shortwave radio. I was baffled by the solitary voice. She's still on the air, and even though I've heard her in one form or another since the early 70s, the sound of her voice continues to haunt me. Ever since I was 13, I've scoured the shortwave bands for exotic signals. It's hard not to stumble over a number station. When I first heard them, no one seemed to know anything about them. By the end of the 70s, they acquired a following. A hardcore group of listeners continued to obsessively tape and analyze these stations. They give them catchy nicknames, like The Boardman and Bulgarian Betty. Hugh Stegman tracks the numbers for Monitoring Times, a journal for hardcore radio listeners. They're encrypted messages to somebody. We think it's to spies, we hope it's just to spies, nothing more sinister than that. A number station is defined as any of several hundred shortwave radio broadcasters, all of which are using high power, big transmitters, large antennas, global coverage of the entire planet, which do nothing except broadcast meaningless strings of numbers. They never say why they're doing it. They never say who they are. My take on the numbers transmissions is that they're the evil twin of a standard shortwave station. They have announcers and programming of a sort. They even adhere to a vintage shortwave tradition, the interval signal. This is a little ditty played a few minutes before the main broadcast to help the listener find and fine-tune the signal. Next comes the header. It could mean who the message is for, it could mean there isn't any message. The header is followed usually by something that lets people know the header is over. The CIA likes to beep. Other stations do other strange things. Ready, ready, three, five. Then they usually go into the message, which is a series of number groups, four or five numbers. I'm envisioning myself as a lonely agent sitting in the basement in some urban area. I have no friends. I'm far from home. I'm far from my family. And this is my communication. This is my link back to my world. So I'm very carefully recording this message. Tell me something. I say again. I asked Bruce Schneier, a leading academic cryptographer, why an intelligence agency would communicate with an agent in the field in such an open way. It seems to be a relic of the Cold War. We always think of the radio as mass broadcast. You speak on the radio and everybody listens. This is an example of radio being used to talk to one particular person. You encrypt the message, which allows you to use this public broadcast medium to send a private message. That's really very pretty. 
The CIA does it, Russia does it, Cuba does it, the British do it, everybody does it. Hugh Stegman. Okay, evidence, that's a problem. There's never anything that hard. I've always assumed these are using a one-time pad or a variant, which are theoretically unbreakable, given the assumptions of only having the ciphertext or only having what's broadcast on the stations. A one-time pad is a page of random numbers, which is the key used to encrypt and then decrypt the message. The sender and recipient each have a copy. The pad is used once and then destroyed. It is pretty much untraceable. The operations have been compromised over and over again. People are captured, people change sides, people just get sloppy. Many, many times they've seen the code pads, they've seen the receivers. The fact that the other side knows that this is how they do it does not give them any more access to the information. It's a perfect system in that respect. Some stations get jammed, presumably by rivals who pinpointed the transmitter site using sophisticated techniques. A numbers enthusiast has to rely on intensive listening to pick up any clues. Most of what you hear in the United States does come from Cuba. The Cuban stuff started right after Castro got in and started getting tensions in that area. It has gone on since. The engineering is sloppy. Tapes stop in the middle. Tapes are played backwards. They play Radio Havana by mistake. Radio Havana plays them by mistake. You get the idea they're just barely on top of the situation, but they keep at it. There's another Spanish numbers lady who is widely heard in North America. Some numbers monitors claim to have traced a signal to a government transmitter site in Warrington, Virginia. They call her Cynthia, as in starts with a C and ends with IA. Havana Moon just came out of nowhere. He just started writing one day about the shortwave numbers, and his stuff was extremely provocative, and it seemed to come from straight inside. The only thing he would ever say about himself was that he was a retired intelligence type, a real trench coat, cloak and dagger spook. There is some connection between the operations in Warrington, Remington, and uh, CIA, and maybe the uh, Defense Intelligence Agency. Havana Moon was a gentleman named William Godby. He was a retired naval personnel, and he was just a very nice gentleman to know. Havana Moon, who died in 1996, found a co-conspirator in John Fulford, an ex-police intelligence officer with an interest in radio's dark side. During the late 1980s, they roamed around Florida with the radio direction finder. He confided in me that he suspected there was one, possibly two transmitter sites in South Florida. He had an idea where a couple of them were. Uh, we took some equipment out. I set the direction finder up. We took some bearings over a couple of weeks. Where the bearing lines crossed was right around a military transmitter site located uh, in one of the airports here in South Florida. We drove right to the airport. When the transmitters came on, the radio nearly jumped out of our hands. Uh, the signal was so loud. So we figured right there we had it. During the day, the Navy sent standard traffic over this transmitter. Located at West Palm Beach International Airport, its frequency was just three kilohertz away from the numbers transmission. The antennas were beamed down into the Caribbean. Who sent the traffic would have no idea. It is an unmanned site sent over a telephone line from parts unknown. I would have no idea. Obviously, uh, one of the intelligence agencies. My name is John R. Winston. I'm the Assistant Bureau Chief of the Enforcement Bureau, Federal Communications Commission. 
We don't intend to discuss these stations, if any exist at all, and I'm not saying there are. If you're trying to say there are those that are transmitting in this country, we know of innumerable ones outside of this country. Our only interest is if they are causing interference, we then work with the country of transmission to seek solution. Well, you can't hide a transmitter. Cryptographer Bruce Schneier. Now, remember what a number station is doing. It's hiding the location of the recipient. The location of the transmitter is not necessarily a secret. The person who's receiving it is somewhere, and we don't know where. Every night in the week in Europe, you could hear these weird gongs sound like some sort of church bells out of tune. But that was part of the stars of stations. Simon Mason discovered the numbers in much the same way I did. By the mid-80s, he'd begun to seriously document the European number scene from his home in Kingston-upon-Hull in England. There's been this spy uncovered in my home city, and I know what he was listening to when he was under the uh, control of the Stasi, the East German secret police. And God knows what his wife and kids thought when they heard these gongs coming out of his kitchen. <laughs> Five months after the Berlin Wall fell, the gong station went off the air forever. By and large, a lot of the big players in the Cold War era have gone now. And there's a lot of activity now in the Far East. The strangest one of the lot has got to be the one from Taiwan. Writer Hugh Stegman. It's called New Star Broadcasting, and it has this lady who they tell me even in that culture is way, way too enthusiastic. And she's been computerized, and she comes out of the machine. She says things like, good morning, please decode your message. This is all in Mandarin, of course. She says things like, thank you very much for decoding today's message. I hope you have a nice day. I mean, she's being nice to the spies. You gotta love it. That this station is so over the top leads Stegman to think that the purpose is less for transmitting secret messages than for spreading disinformation. Just this colossal diversion so that the mainland Chinese will think that Taiwan has put hundreds and hundreds of agents into that country, which they might or might not have done. I would say that's maybe why half these agencies do it this way. It makes two guys in a government office in some crummy building without water somewhere sound like, you know, they're on a level with the CIA. Everybody sounds the same on shortwave. Most monitors seem sure that the number stations are a part of international espionage, but some signals remain elusive. There are a few strange stations, I must admit, like the buzzer on 4625 kilohertz. Simon Mason says the buzzer has been going for at least 20 years. It stopped only once for a live numbers message on Christmas Eve in 1997. Maybe he's just keeping this frequency open in case some sort of world disaster happens and then they can take over with uh, just a simple shortwave setup. After all, the satellites have been blown out of the sky. Just like a notepad and paper left behind in case your computer crashes. I think it's just the biggest conceptual art project, unintentional or otherwise, that anybody ever made. It puts Christo and those guys to shame. It's planetary. I listen to shortwave these days with a bit of a pang. It's fading out, regarded as archaic by many international broadcasters. Yet the number stations persist. Sometimes when I hear one, I write down some of the groups and wonder who the message is for and what it might say. Meet your contact. Blow up the bridge. Don't blow up the bridge. 
Maybe it's just keep listening. The Shortwave Numbers Mystery by producer David Gorin. This piece was produced for Lost and Found Sound in 2000. I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Basically, radio is a one-way medium. We talk, you listen. Sure, there are public radio call-in shows that are meant to sound live, but more often than not, they're highly edited and pre-produced. Listeners hate to hear that, but it's true. But there have been brief moments in the history of the medium where the airwaves really were a free-for-all, and then completely new forms of sound were born. Max Newhouse makes sound works that are neither music nor events. He coined the term sound installation and has been the engine behind all sorts of new ways of thinking about and experiencing sound. Roman Mars is a radio producer, and in fact, one of the former producers of this very program, ReSound. And it was Roman who developed the multi-layered sound design that's a signature of our show. One of his inspirations while he was working on ReSound was Max Newhouse. For the show, I create these mixes, these sound collages comprised of layered elements that relate to the themes of the program. And one of the elements in this mix, the one that you're hearing right now, is actually one I use a lot on on lots of different shows. But to be able to hear it, we're going to have to turn down some of this other stuff. So let's take down the transmissions from Saturn. I don't know if you recognize those. Those are transmissions from Saturn. And the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot Woman. And the music. That's the band Miwon. They rule. This. Right there. That's Radio Net. And for two hours, this played on 200 national public radio affiliate stations in 1977 on a beautiful Sunday afternoon. It's a composition with 10,000 contributing musicians. It's a sound entity, really. But I'm getting ahead of myself. RadioNet is part of a continuum of broadcast works by Max Newhouse, starting with Public Supply One, in 1966. I'm Max Newhouse. I uh, work with sound as an artist and as an inventor sometimes even. I have done so for most of my adult life, so the last, uh, let's see, almost 50 years. I was asked to do an interview, a radio interview, on WBAI in New York. And I thought, rather than doing an interview, why don't I try to do a work that would be for the radio? This was in 1966. At that time, there were no radio call-in shows, so the idea of connecting the, the telephone network to the radio station, which I wanted to do, to make a two-way space out of the radio, rather than out of a radio broadcast, rather than just a one-way one, was unheard of, and it was uh, difficult to do. In fact, the engineer was so sure that we would have so so many bad words broadcast that he refused to consider the project except as an interview. So he said in the end he would put the 
a microphone in the studio for two hours, and uh, what uh, I put into the microphone was up to me. So I got ten telephone lines installed into this WBAI studio and built a kind of Rube Goldberg automatic answering system, because in 1966 there were no answering machines either, which allowed me to, from a, a, a homemade box, a homemade mixer, uh, control, uh, pick up the phone, and uh, mix sounds, uh, which I put into an amplifier and put a loudspeaker in front of his microphone. And when it came time to go on the air, we went on the air. Call Oxford 78506 or Oxford 79526 to be a part of public supply. It was like you know, a funny kind of party, but everybody wasn't seeing each other. Everybody was listening to each other. And the way I describe it now is kind of a live, it was a wild live sound collage, but people also hearing their own voices on the radio was uh, you know, a startling thing. At that time, not many people had tape recorders, so hearing your, your own voice was <laughs> a revelation. You know? So it, it, it's quite exciting. Yes, I mean, it was, it was raw and wild. In fact, there wasn't any swearing, and WBA uh, kept its license. <laughs> there were a couple iterations of Max Newhouse's public supply, including a Peabody award-winning broadcast on WFMT in Chicago, where callers' voices activated special instruments, in addition to coming through clearly so that what they were saying could actually be understood. And what do people say when they're given the opportunity to be on the air for the very first time? The answer is kind of the same high mom, hand-waving, goofy sorts of things that they do when they're given the opportunity today. Banana man, banana man, I like my banana. A few years later, a fairly new and compared to today, much more experimental NPR came calling and offered Max the opportunity to do the exact same thing, but on a nationwide scale. Which brings us back to Radio Net. National Public Radio presents Radio Net, a live nationwide composition by Max Newhouse. Radio Net is a piece of music. In this case, we'll be using the National Public Radio Network to actually generate a piece of music from sounds, sound material, phoned in by anyone from anywhere. I think the most important thing for the listener to realize is that we're making a piece of music. And all one really has to do is listen with an open mind. NPR now invites you to become part of Radio Net. Dial any one of the following telephone numbers. Area At that point, I was really fighting, you know, this idea that music could be made another way. Of this idea of really activating a lay public and inventing their own music. It was just, you know, it was from Mars. <laughs> Radionet sounds different from Public Supply for a number of reasons. Newhouse took advantage of the NPR distribution system of the time, called a round robin, which connected all the 200 stations. And how this was normally used was that a station would feed a program to all the others by breaking into this round robin telephone line and, and sending it around the loop. So Newhouse picked five cities, New York, Dallas, Atlanta, Minneapolis, and Los Angeles, and subdivided the network into five loops, each point having its own 
automatic mixer, which selected fractions of the sound that were being fed in by the phone callers. So during the broadcast, the sounds phoned into each city passed through its self-mixer and started looping. With each cross-country pass, each sound made another layer overlapping itself at different pitches until it gradually died away. It was the activation of an entire continent into a sound transformation box that was literally 1,500 miles wide by 3,000 miles long with five ins and outs emerging in Washington, D.C., where Max Newhouse sat and mixed them all together, controlling this five-headed animal so that it didn't spin off into a massive feedback loop. It was a, it was a fantastic moment. I mean, to go from uh, one station <coughs> with, with a 20-mile radius to uh, transcontinental in 11 years. So it was quite amazing, yes. So, Max, what was NPR's take on this? Because it was live, so they'd never heard it before. So, I mean, I imagine their collective jaws were just on the floor. It was risky, and they were really in shock after it was over. Uh, they didn't want to do it again. They were really terrified. Uh, mostly, in the beginning, they were... <laughs> All these pieces terrorize people because they're afraid there's going to be one minute of dead air. I mean, like this... <laughs> How horrible. <laughs> 30 seconds, they're in, they're in panic. <laughs> I mean, radio is, is really quite beautiful. It's not hard to, to listen to. But still, two hours for them of prime time Sunday afternoon on New Year's, the Sunday after New Year's, I think really put them in shock. But in a way, I, you know, I, I had them and they had me. <laughs> they couldn't, and we were there for two hours. <laughs> But they, there was, uh, there was no, there was no, uh, nobody talking about a repeat performance in 1978. It was like, God, we lived through it. We're going to have to cover our asses somehow. But <laughs> they were in shock. NPR was in shock. <laughs> well, RadioNet was definitely a, a moment in time, along with public supply. But do you think that there are bigger lessons for radio in these works? Certainly, radio did take this idea, and it uh, shaped it to fit its own, the idea of a call-in show now, even though it's, it's on the other end of the spectrum. At least it's two-way, and it's fairly instantaneous. You know, if you put out a call for callers to call in, you get immediately what s- certain people who are willing to call in are thinking about, uh, even though it's, it's very uh, controlled and, uh, and moderated. And that, I think, is very positive. The irony to all this work is that at the time, Max Newhouse forbade these compositions from being recorded. And his idea was that they existed as entities, that any listener should be able to modify what they were hearing by contributing to the composition, something that couldn't happen if it was a music recording. He was very strict about this. No recording was to be made. And as best I can tell, Not one engineer at WBAI or WFMT or National Public Radio listened to him, which is the only reason why they're available to be heard today. Because you can violate a lot of rules. You can turn a one-way medium like radio into a two-way communication device and synthesizer. You can put people's voices on the air unmoderated and unfiltered. But under no circumstances can you stop a radio engineer from recording a sound. That was former ReSound producer Roman Mars 
talking with Max Newhouse. The next evolution in Max Newhouse's broadcast work is called Oracle. That's A-U-R-A-C-L-E. And it's sort of an online version of Radionet, but it's 24 hours a day and anyone can play. You can find a link on the ReSound page at thirdcoastfestival.org. Am I on the air? Yes, what's your phone? Oh, hi. What an honor to speak with you, Dr. Laura. I'm sitting here having my lunch, and, and when I heard the topic come on, I nearly... I, I have to call her. This is a... Absolute... Okay, Julie, focus. 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 Aside from the licensed radio stations, the Citizens Band, and shortwave operators, there are those who believe that the airwaves are public space and belong to everyone. They're often called pirates, but they prefer the term micro-broadcasters, and they just want a little piece of airspace, whether the FCC wants to give it to them or not. We end today's show with an ode to the pirate station, written by author Rick Moody, read by actor and musician John Lurie, and produced by Emily Botin and Sherry DeLise. For the first 24 hours, the pirate station broadcasts the sound of someone coughing nervously. An august beginning. It's not the dead air of the rural FM dial of the desertified Southwest. It's someone coughing nervously. Much nervousness at the beginning of the pirate station and so much nervous coughing. The next Tuesday, a jazz band is convened so that jazz might be played live on the pirate station. None of these guys has ever had a lesson on this instrument. Three different kinds of jazz are discussed, but none are agreed upon. Cool jazz, smooth jazz, and Afro-Cuban jazz. The Pirate Station broadcasts the music of this ensemble for six days without ceasing. There's no agreed upon coda. Pirate Station just pulls the plug. That fall, after weeks of casting about, a symphony is written by filling in notes at random on a staff. A local orchestra attempts to pick out the piece without rehearsal. However, the symphony is considered too sentimental for broadcast. A bird call program is surprisingly popular, with the great horned owl coming in for the most requests. These issuing from the sheriff's office. Maybe it's the lonely night patrolman of the graveyard shift. The sounds of southwestern cacti are broadcast for several weeks though it is generally agreed that cacti make no sounds. The pirate station branches out.
it broadcasts over 12 nights a comparative study of whistles, including whistles that your high school track coach favored when he was in a bad mood, and that guy up the street who can whistle like nobody's business. Briefly, the pirate station backpedals reluctantly and agrees to play musical recordings of the conventional sort, but only if the selections alternate in the following way. Salsa, mariachi, tejana, reggae, tuvan throat singing, toy piano concertos, music released in 1964, and songs sung by tone-deaf people. And yet these categories are considered too easy to fill. And after a week or so, the pirate station loses interest. It was an afternoon of My private soldier may well have made the star more valuable than she was 20 years ago, judging by the interest shown at the Sotheby's auction of Monroe memorabilia. The first lot... The pirate station broadcasts news programs, but never at the top of the hour, and only when bootlegged from other stations. The substance of the news in these programs is altered slightly in order to mislead. The weather is said to be sunny no matter what the weather. The stock market is said to be going down without respite. The high school football team is said to be losing. Newcomers are said to be bringing prosperity to the town, and the war is always said to be going smoothly with little loss of civilian life. Upon the return of the pirate station employees from the holidays, a period of reflection sets in. The microphone is turned on, and all the disc jockeys gather around and speak of their uncertainty about the pirate station. What could be done differently with the medium? What can the pirate station do that no one has done before? Has all hope been lost? Is complete liberty not terrifying in some fundamental way? A recording of the staff meeting is then played backwards, sped up slightly, with the harmonious conclusion first and the confusion at the end. The pirate station sends people out into the street humming with contact mics, the only requirement being that they hum songs with the word joy in the title, though not that horrible song by Three Dog Night. Inducing strangers and townspeople on the street to hum along is considered particularly exciting. A contest is announced on the pirate station to find the person who has the best radio voice. <laughs> 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 
This person is then tickled mercilessly on air and driven blindfolded to a distant metropolis. The sounds of people making love are broadcast for the entire month of May, rising to a crescendo of simultaneous orgasm on May the 14th. And then, dwindling away, as crescendos do, by the 1st of June, just in time for summer. The doors of the pirate station are thrown open and anyone is invited in. The building that houses the pirate station is demolished and soon the pirate station begins moving, night after night, never staying in one place for more than a few hours. Interns carry the transmitter in its small red toolbox. Pirate station becomes a condition of all possible sounds so that everything is a song and there is no commercial interruption and no fundraising drives. The people who began the pirate station grow old, marry, have children, make out wills, and leave the pirate station behind. The sound of freight trains begins to sound suspiciously like broadcasts on the pirate station. The sounds of cheerleaders goading on the local football team are definitely pre-recorded. The federal authorities become obsessed with the possibility that the pirate station is continuing to broadcast, but at wattages so meager and in places so far flung that no one at all can tune the programming. Still, this is unacceptable. Pirate Station refuses to cooperate with finding the enemy. Pirate Station refuses to inform on its neighbors. Pirate Station no longer takes photographs the way it did when young. Pirate Station once thought gardening was satisfying. The Pirate Station makes its own bricks, using mud from the backyard. The Pirate Station forgets the name of distant relations and people it met only recently. The Pirate Station goes off its medication. The Pirate Station quarrels and is testy about things that never used to bother it. The pirate station eats infrequently. The pirate station loses interest in worldly things. The pirate station never calls. The pirate station imagines it can hear the music of the spheres and begins to totter down a long, narrow corridor 
in which many dead friends beckoned to it. But just when it is about to sleep, its eternal sleep, the pirate station reconsiders and remarks that it has work yet to do. Pirate Station, based on an essay by Rick Moody and produced by Emily Botine and Sherry DeLees, a transcontinental collaboration born here at the Third Coast Festival Conference in 2004. This biography of a pirate station first aired on PRI's The Next Big Thing on WNYC in New York. Now, good buddy, it's time for you to choose your handle, pick up your microphone, and do some ratchet drawing on your own. But the point is radio. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agadino Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, Chicago's Navy Pier, and American Airlines. Special thanks to the many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.